All right, so the title of this lesson is The Holy Spirit's Conveyance of Blessing, of Blessings, which in the study of the Lord's Supper, you might be going, wow, okay, are we going down a rabbit hole here? Well, I'm going to say this from the outset. Um, we're going to be spending some time in a passage, um, not in Corinthians, and uh, but it's still one of Paul's letters. And it is going to be focused on the Holy Spirit and his role and work, his, the ministry of the Spirit, in particular in bringing blessing to us. And so I encourage you to just, you know, pay attention and um there, there's some good details that we're going to be walking through as uh, Barcellus walks us through. And, and at the end, God willing, we'll be able to tie it up, or I'll be able to tie it up, and help you understand why does this matter in regard to the Lord's Supper. With that, um, let's go ahead and get started here. So last week, uh, Brother Stephen here, he walked us through um, some considerations of the Lord's Supper, helped us see... Um, our very present communion with the Lord and sharing the body and blood of Christ. It's not just a memorial, right? As the subtitle says, it's, it's a present blessing as well. This koinonia in the body and blood of, of Christ, this participation. What Jesus did for us becomes ours through the Lord's Supper by the grace that he has gotten for us, purchased for us. Namely, I'm talking about the spiritual benefits, okay? I'm not talking about salvation. The Lord certainly purchased that for us. I'm, I'm more of the, uh, we're talking about this morning, the spiritual benefits, those saving graces, in fact. And this participation, this koinonia, what we learned last week, of the body and blood of Christ, it feeds and nourishes are very needy souls. We also learned that communion is not necessarily so much a horizontal sharing as much as it is a vertical sharing. Okay, what does that mean? When we have communion with Christ, it's, it's already through that faith that he grants to us. It's already through that faith he has granted. And it needs to be understood as a means of grace a means of nurturing what he has already purchased, as Stephen explained last week. And so when we're communing, we're communing with the Lord. It is primarily a, a, a vertical um, time of worship, really. Um, but there is a horizontal aspect to it, as Stephen brought out, and that we're all sharing together in the meal with the Lord. Uh, so now we're going to focus on the work of the Holy Spirit in bringing those blessings that Christ has purchased to his followers. So we're going to be spending some time in Ephesians chapter 1. So you might as well put your finger there because we're going to go there here in a minute. Primarily verses 3 through 14. And even then, most of the time on verse 3. Um, so that's where we're going to be spending our time. Richard Barcellos, he comments on the passage that we're about to read. In fact, before we do that, let's read it. Let's go to Ephesians 1. We're going to go verses 3 through 14. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard of the, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the whole promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So, Marcellus, he uh, comments on this passage saying it is the most glorious doxologically and soteriologically, I had to practice saying those a few times, um, salvific, you know, and praise-oriented packed section of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians and probably of all his letters. What we see in this passage is how the triune God, each three persons of the Trinity, play a part in our redemption. That which is purposed long ago, purchased and applied. All right. So we're going to do some observations here in this passage. The purpose of the apostle in this passage was to encourage readers to worship God. Gives a lot of good reasons and um, very wonderful reasons. And I, I want to share some of the um, reasons that Barcelos has enumerated in his book. Well, first is that first reason, these one of the wonderful reasons to be worshiping God is that uh, it is thought that perhaps the Ephesians were having a hard time of it, that they were struggling. You know, they were in a very sensual and spirit-aggravating culture. It was all around them. It was pervasive. And they needed the very vertical and trinity-oriented praise of what God has done for them. They needed to hear that and the power that's behind it. And so that's why it's at the start of the letter here. Another reason, Marcellus notes, is that the passage has one all-controlling implied verb, okay, an implied verb. In other words, if you read the Greek, you're not going to see it there. But you can't help but know that it is an implied verb. And that verb is be. He says the whole passage subordinates itself to the very simple assertion given in verse 3, which says, blessed be 
the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That assertion right there drives the entire passage. Okay? So, another observation or reason is it's not so clear in our English Bibles is that the entire passage that I read is one sentence in the Greek. It's one sentence in the Greek. That definitely, in my reading, I could tell that it has ruffled the feathers of a number of scholars. Um, what a funny thing to get upset about. Um, but as you read this passage, especially you know when you read it out loud like I just did, you can hopefully see why it's so long. Isn't Paul just getting caught up in the, a moment of praising God? Doesn't it just read that way? Another observation in this passage is that although it is, again, large and complex, and in, in when you look at it from the Greek, that there are some indications of symmetry that is in that passage, all right? And if you see that symmetry in here, it's, it's set off by a few refrains. Um, refrains that says, to the praise of his glory. So if you were to go in there and find those, those, those phrases, those refrains, to the praise of his glory, they're setting off uh, a new sections within this entire passage. All right, we see it in verse 6, verse 12, and verse 14. To the praise of his glory. Now these refrains, Barcelos submits, indicate transition in the text. And for example, in verses 4 through 6, that first section set off by this phrase, it focuses on what God the Father has done. Remember, this is a very triune, trinity-oriented view of what God has done for us, okay? So verses 4 through 6 focus on what God the Father has done. Verses 7 through 12 focus on what Jesus the Son has done, and then Verses 13 and 14 focus on what the Holy Spirit has done or does. Okay? All right. Lastly, to point out the symmetry that's identified by those phrases to the praise of his glory, there is a framework that can be seen about our redemption, how it has been promised, how it's been procured, purchased, and how it is applied. And you can see that done to the three persons. So let's do this. Let's dive in and um, walk through the, that symmetry that Barcelos pulls out in this passage of Ephesians 1 verses 3 through 14. All right, in verses 4 through 16, or rather 4 through 6, that first section, we read of the effect of the covenant of redemption. Now who here has heard of that term before, the covenant of redemption. All right, a number of you have. All right, the covenant of redemption. It's also known as pactum salutis, all right? In reformed federalism, okay? And what I mean by federalism is that there is a representative nature, okay? In reformed federalism, the pretemporal intra Trinitarian agreement of the Father and the Son concerning the covenant of grace 
and its ratification in and through the work of the Son incarnate. All right. Pretemporal. Let's kind of break this down real quick. Pretemporal. That means basically before the existence of time. It's a lot easier to write pretemporal. Um, intra Trinitarian. What does intra mean? It means within. All right. So within the Godhead. Not to be confused with the word inter-Trinitarian, which would be a heresy. That there would be three gods, i.e. pantheism. So intra-Trinitarian, all right? And so this covenant of redemption, that word right there gives it away. Father and the Son covenanting to redeem man. And this is, again, before time existed before the the founding of the world. Barcella says the pactum salutis, which is again the same thing as covenant of redemption, is evidenced in election by the Father in verse 4 in this passage in Ephesians that is said to be in him or in Christ. Election in him it constitutes a pretemporal, right, before the existing existence of time, um, non-vital union with Christ in virtue of God's electing purpose and the Son's coveted obedience, right? Christ is obedient in this. This reflects, again, what Reformed theology has labeled the covenant of redemption. You know, when you read the words predestined um, to adoption as sons, that, that's a pretemporal appointment. This predestination. The, the, it is a, a pretemporal appointment to a certain end. Reflective, reflective of this very divine covenant, this pactum. Because it is through Jesus Christ, as we see in verse 5. All right? The Father. He elects the Son, or in the Son, and predestinates those elected unto sonship through the Son. And he does this before the foundation of the world, virtue of the Son's covenanted obedience. All right, verses 4 through 6 express the covenant of redemption, this pactum salutis. Next section, verses 4 through 12, um, that actually go 7 through 12, right? Um, Paul, he expresses what theology defines as the history of redemption in verses 7 through 12. The history of redemption, uh, or historia salutis, if you want to throw the Latin in there. Um, Maybe you haven't heard of this term before. Um, it's not a covenant, as is the pactum salutis, but it is rather, as Barcelos defines it, the historical unfolding of salvation as found in the scriptures that culminate in the sufferings and glory of Christ, who is the promised and covenanted Messiah. Right? The, the historia salutis, it's evidenced by the historical accomplishment of what we see in verse 7 by the phrase, redemption through his blood. We see its accomplishment there. 
redemption through his blood. All right. Lastly, verses 13 and 14, we see a picture of the ordo salutis. Who has heard that term before? Right. That one's a little bit more well-known sometimes. But. All right. We see a picture of the ordo salutis, the order of salvation, if you can put it that way. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a term applied to the temporal order of causes, so it's within time. The, the temporal order of causes and effects through which the salvation of the sinner is accomplished. All right, what am I talking about? <coughs> Excuse me. And some of these things are happening simul simultaneously, you could say. Well, it's the calling. The calling that we experience, it's regeneration, it's adoption, it's conversion, it's faith, justification, sanctification, glorification. The ordo salutis. It's the order of the application of redemption, right? The ordo salutis is evidence in believing the gospel in the sealing of the Holy Spirit as is stated in verse 13. So what we see Paul write in Ephesians 1 verses 3 through 14 is the Trinitarian view. It's in relation to the plan of redemption. All right. Now, we still have a purpose in this in terms of the Lord's Supper, so we'll get to that. There's a controlling assertion here, all right? And it's focusing on verse 3 in Ephesians chapter 1. So and we'll spend some time and go a bit deeper there. Uh, Barcelos, he elaborates that there is a controlling assertion in verse 3 that concerns the praise given to God the Father for the redemptive blessings that we receive from him, all right? A controlling assertion. Blessings that are Trinitarian in both mode and operation, okay? Now, what is that assertion? Verse 3 asserts the blessing of or the praise of God the Father. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is an assertion. Blessed be. Praise be. In this verse, God is praised and he is to be praised. And it controls our interpretation here, this assertion of verses 4 through 14. God the Father is to be praised for the redemptive blessings conferred to us in Christ and enjoyed by the work of the Holy Spirit. This controlling assertion of praise given to the Father for what I just explained, Barcelos wants to break it down even more. And the reason why he does, does this, he wants us to be able to look at it from differing angles to see the profundity in this assertion. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's three things we're gonna look at. First is the essence of this controlling assertion. The essence is seen in the first word, blessed. The Greek word translated here, it's only seen eight times in the New Testament. It's always in reference to God. Each time it introduces a really a, a, a benediction or an anthem of praise. God is to be blessed. Why? 
Why? Because he has so blessed us. Now, Paul, in his writing, he's not only praising God himself, that is, worshiping while he's writing this, this letter, he's promoting the worthiness of praising God to others. Right? And verses 4 through 14 expound upon that as it talks about the plan of redemption and how the three persons of the Godhead are involved. The assertion is, blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Another angle to view this controlling assertion is to see the grounding of that assertion. So we talked about the essence being the word blessed. That's the essence. The grounding um, is being commuted in the assertion it's its basis here. So the grounding is who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This is in verse 3. That's the grounding here. Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Why is God the Father blessed? Again, because he has blessed us. But how he has blessed us is seen in three prepositional phrases that begin with the words in and with in this phrase in verse 3. The one who has blessed us in Christ. That's the first prepositional phrase, right? You thought you were done with grammar when you finished school. I'm sorry. If you want to be a student of God's word, you're going to have to remember your grammar. And I'll tell you one thing. Translators don't always get it right either. All right. The one who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing and in the heavenly places. Three reasons why God the Father is to be blessed or praised or worshiped or adored by those that he blesses. Okay? That first prepositional phrase that we're going to consider is with every spiritual blessing. Now every means every. Every spiritual blessing God has for believers has come or will come to them. God is not stingy. As Marcellus noted, he's not stingy. He is to be praised due to the quantity of blessings that are conferred. Quantity. Many blessings. He asks this question in his book. He says, what do we make of that second word that modifies blessing? That word spiritual. Because these aren't just blessings. They're spiritual blessings. He says that he thinks it is best to take this as a reference to the bearer of God's blessings. The one who, who is appointed to bring the fruits of Christ's redemptive labors to the souls of men. And who is that? It's the Holy Spirit. Spiritual blessings, because they're spirit-born. In other words, the two words together, spiritual blessings, they're not so much to be considered spiritual as to describe them as things, like spiritual things, like our minds tend to read that word, but they're going to be considered more as blessings wrought and bought by the Holy Spirit. Spiritual blessings means blessings brought to us by the Spirit of God. 
And he adds Barcelos that the blessings are termed this way because of the connection with the spirit. All right? Spiritual blessings. The spirit of God is the bearer of God the Father's blessings procured for us by the blood of Christ. So we can count on these blessings, can't we? If we are in Christ. Yeah. The second prepositional phrase as to why God the Father is worthy of praise is that he has blessed believers in the heavenly places. In the heavenly places. Now this phrase refers to the the sphere of these manifold blessings. The heavenly places. Or maybe better, as Barcellus describes it, the dimension of existence in which believers experience special spiritual blessings. Not saying that we are caught up in the heavens and experience these blessings. He's simply saying, or speaking now, not to the quantity of the blessings, but to the quality of the blessings. The quality of them. They're heaven born, these spiritual blessings. Charles Hodge says this. He says, These blessings pertain to that heavenly state into which the believer is introduced, not will be introduced. All right? So again, it's a very present blessing. This is probably best understood, he says, in an already not yet eschatological sense. The heavenly realm as a state of existence. Now he's not getting mystical here. The heavenly realm as a state of existence for believers on earth is the age to come in the eclipsing of this age in relation to the sufferings and glory of Christ and in relation to the experience of believers by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So what am I saying here? What is Hodge saying? They're not stored up, these blessings, for us in heaven for our future use. They are procured for us and applied to us by the Spirit, but their blessings wrought by the work of Christ. It's not blessings to be only enjoyed in the age to come, but very much now, these spiritual blessings. They're not blessings to be enjoyed once we get to where Christ is, Instead, it is as if heaven has been and is being brought to our souls by the Holy Spirit. How? Through the means of grace. All right, now we're getting a little warmer. What's our subject? The Lord's Supper. Through the means of grace, due to the work of Christ in accordance with the Father's electing and predestinating purposes. Again, you see that pactum salutis being fulfilled. Already, and we're enjoying it. Now, the Holy Spirit in his ministry to believers, it brings us heavenly age-to-come blessings in this age. Now, a word about these spiritual blessings. Remember what I preached on last Sunday in First Peter, or Second Peter. There were a, a number of saving graces that Peter spoke about. Let me just read them again real quick. Um, 1 Peter 1, verses, I think, 5 through 7. Yes, for this every reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. Okay, that's the first saving grace. 
to supplement your faith with virtue, number two, and virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. So eight, if you count faith, eight saving graces. Friends, these are spiritual blessings. These are the spiritual blessings we need to see our faith increase and grow, to be grace-filled. And what is the means of grace we're talking about today? The Lord's Supper. All right, the third prepositional phrase, the third reason given why God the Father is worthy of praise is due to the fact that he has blessed us in Christ, in Christ. Blessing procured in union with Christ that all believers enjoy. See, unlike in Adam or in Old Covenant Israel, where prohibition failed, right? The, the command given was not followed. And eternal blessings were not secured. Unlike that, very conversely, in Christ... The prohibitions of the covenant of works are fulfilled. Christ did this. He completed it. The Holy Spirit confers upon those whom Christ represents, again, that reform federalism. The Holy Spirit confers upon those whom Christ represents as federal head all the merited blessings that he has purchased, that he has procured through his suffering obedience. Do we not get invited to eat his flesh and drink his blood? It is because believers are in union with Christ, they get what the Holy Spirit brings to their souls. These are the benefits of Christ's body and blood. So, how does all this relate to the Lord's Supper? I'm glad you asked. Ephesians 1 verse 3, it helps us understand that God brings grace to men and how he does it. God the Father is to be praised by believers due to the ministry of the Holy Spirit in ushering into our souls salvific eschatological blessings that have been purchased for us by Christ. And we get to enjoy them now. It's a taste of heaven being brought to the souls of believers by the Spirit of God. It's not something that just is waiting for us in our glorification. That's when we are perfected. Something to look forward to, of course. Right. God does this due to the fact that Christ procured these blessings through his blood. Verse 7 in Ephesians 1. Okay, Through his blood and are brought to the souls of elect sinners. Now the benefits... Of Christ's body and blood. Again, the elements of the Lord's Supper. The benefits of Christ's body and blood, which we read of, and the brother went over last week on 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. Let me read that verse to you. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in 
in the body of Christ. These benefits are the spiritual blessings explained in verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 1. Through the Lord's Supper, communion with Christ and the benefits of his blood and body takes place. This communion is affected by the Holy Spirit, who's the bearer of blessings from the Father because of the works of Christ. This is how the Lord's Supper is a means of grace. It's not something that we do. It's something that God does and has done. Just as our Lord is the mediator between God and men, we see that in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. Just as he is that mediator, the Holy Spirit is the mediator between all our exalted Lord and Savior, our exalted Redeemer, and elect sinners on earth. And one of those means of grace that that's procured is through the Lord's Supper. Sinclair Ferguson, he says this in regards to the Supper. He says, in the supper, the Spirit comes to close the gap, all right? To close the gap, as it were, between Christ in heaven and the believer on earth and to give communion of us, communion to us with our exalted Savior. All right, so why study this passage in Ephesians? Why study it in regard to the Lord's Supper? Because it supplies us with, as the way Barcellus explained it, the theological mechanics that we read about in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. All right? The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not our participation in the, in the blood of Christ, in the body of Christ? It supplies the theological mechanics here. How is this happening? Where is it happening from? Why? This participation in the body and blood of Christ, it's mediated by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who mediates all of God's blessings from the Father in Christ to all believers. Blessings whose qualities are likened as heavenly. They are heavenly. Blessings to be enjoyed now that prepare us, that prepare us for when someday we'll be drinking of the vine with Christ in heaven. I hope uh, this helps you grasp a little bit more of the blessing that we have in taking the Lord's Supper.